another piece of advice that I think is probably maybe maybe the most important part of this whole conversation is don't believe anything I say my blog says or anything else. And I say that jokingly on one hand, but I'm very serious. And here's why. Everybody is unique. The facts and circumstances have to rule. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. And I cannot be doing this right now without my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Oh, man, just sitting here right off the Sunset Strip here in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, Sin City. And I'm doing some traveling as well. Grant and I are camping down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We just came from a really cool event down in New Orleans. Let me guess, a crawfish boil? <laughs> Not quite, not quite. But Justin, you know what? I think people who already did their taxes are going to be bumming big time after they hear today's episode because who we have on today is Keith from The Wealthy Accountant, and he just drops tax bomb after tax bomb on us, shows us all the things we don't know. And Justin, what do you think about the episode? Well, I mean, I think the thing you'll notice is how enthusiastic he is about this topic. I mean, you'll hear throughout his story how he just would sit and read books about this stuff any given time of the day, he's completely consumed by taxes, which is an awesome thing. But let's not give away his whole story. Take it away, Keith. Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning, I, I use the old Bugs Bunny cartoon joke where you go all the way back to the beginning of time. But <laughs> in my story for my life, I grew up, I, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family. I grew up in an in a agricultural, a farming family in the backwoods of what I call nowhere, Wisconsin. And we didn't necessarily have a lot of money growing up. And even if we did, we, we lived rather frugal. And, and, and part of the reason why is we just didn't have anything to spend it on. I mean, I lived a long ways away from, from town. We lived on a gravel road. They didn't, they didn't, I think it was like 1978. So I was like 14, 15, 16 years old when they decided to go ahead and blacktop our road. That was big news in our community. And then, you know, my grandfather having the farm did rather well, I discovered later on in life. And my dad did as well too. But you got to remember, we went through a time where we were big savers. The economy for farming got really bad in the early 80s. In 1982, the family farm went through a bankruptcy. And then what happened is after uh, we went through that, the farm was gone. We kept most of the land. We got rid of some of the machinery and, and the animals. And of course, here I am 18. I had a background really of shoveling manure for a living. And that's what I thought I was going to do. I mean, I was just this dumb kid in the backwoods of nowhere, literally. And the intelligent thing I did was I was just really, intel- it wasn't intelligence, it was stupid. I was so stupid, I didn't know enough to quit. So I just kept on doing things and I kept on saving. In high school, I fell in love with my sophomore year. I fell in love with the stock market crash in 1929. And I just wanted to figure out why it was. So I became a saver very early and an investor. So I guess if you want to, uh, you have to ask the questions if you want me to go deeper into this story, but that's kind of where it really started in the beginning. I really, I was already at 18 investing. As soon as I turned, my parents wouldn't let me invest in the market before 18. I had like a passbook savings account. I had snuck some out and actually got some invested prior to that. But we have, there was actually a bank around here that had like a discount brokerage firm called Valley Bank. They're gone now. It's They're a different bank, though, but Valley Bank is the one that had it. So I was one of their clients and I was picking up stocks. And eventually I was buying mutual funds probably by the time I was 20 in, in a variety of type things. So, 
And so I know like from reading some of the stuff on your blog that before you completely stepped away from the farm, you know, you went ahead and started running some of the books for the farm and, and early on doing some of those first tax returns. How did you get the education for that? Because it's one thing to to look at something like the stock market crash and think, I want to invest to getting that deep into, because you have legal implications and things like that. So I'd like to hear how you jumped into actually running books and tax returns. It's actually kind of funny because it wasn't actually the farm. So but I turned 18, the farm was gone, but my dad started an agricultural repair business. He hated bookkeeping and payroll and taxes and accounting. And of course, we went through this gut-wrenching bankruptcy. The family suffered. So my dad hated bookkeeping. So that became default my work. And since I didn't mind doing it, I also had the issue of I didn't get paid a whole lot because my dad was broke. We went through this bankruptcy. And here I am, 18. So other employees would say, geez, would you do my tax return? Well, hell, somebody would slap me a quick 20 bucks and I was a happy man. <laughs> and very shortly, I was doing tax returns for a few vendors. I maybe ended up with close to about 50 clients doing it. It wasn't a lot, but you got to remember, I had zero overhead. I was doing it by hand. I wouldn't even waste paper on carbon copies. I was just printing these things out, making a quick couple bucks. And all of this went into the First National Bank of Investments. So that was a really good way for me to start out and, and learning with returns that weren't bad. But I was challenged because at that time, probably about the mid-80s, one of my dad's clients down toward Madison hadn't filed his tax return since like 78. <laughs> Oh, wow. So he and he and he and he had boxes like these milk crates full of receipts and that. So I said, I'll take it. I was hungry. He's going to pay me cash. I'm a I'm a happy man. So as I'm doing this, I said yes. And most people may not know this, but since I've been around doing this for a long time, there was a tax code change in 1981, which means I really came into this my first part time year doing it in 1982, which really was the 81 tax year. So this new tax law came into place and I looked at the previous years and thought to myself, oh, my God, now that is some weird stuff because it was Prior to that, in the 60s and 70s, we really had a very unique and different tax code. People don't appreciate what the 81 tax code did. So I, I was in this position where I had to call up the IRS and say, well, I need tax forms for 78, 79, 80, 81. And I'm looking at this thing and, boy, I hope I can do this. <laughs> I got cash. I better get this done. I don't want to have to give it back. But you get the experience and you do it and you know, I never stopped learning from day one. So I'd go to libraries, I'd eventually buy the tax books. And when I'm saying tax books, I'm not talking things you buy at Amazon or in you know, Barnes and Noble. I'm talking about CCH and RIA, which are the authoritative tax guides. So when most guys, let me just be blunt, I'll say this funnily <laughs> or humorously. And that is, you know, when some people go to the restroom, they read a novel. I was reading the tax code. <laughs> But, you know, that's how you get good. You just keep on immersing yourself in it. And if you do it long enough, you're going to start getting good at it. So I kind of want to move forward in your story. So how long did you do this tax accounting for before? And at the same time, were you taking like really good control of your personal finances or did that come later on? Well, I started, you know, part time in 82 and then I, in 89, I went full time for taxes. I had this thing when I was really young because I came from this poor background. I really thought, boy, if I could be the richest man on the planet someday, I wanted to be Warren Buffett circa 1982 and 83. Somewhere between here and there, I realized that wasn't going to happen. However, I learned a lot of things along the way and I took control of my finances because my grandfather and my father were, were they had these little truisms, you know, 
My grandfather, for example, would say things like, you never take off the pile. And what he meant by that is you can invest your money in whether it be in a CD, whether it be in the stock market. And if you want to live off of dividends and interest, you're more than welcome to do so. But the moment you dig into that, to that principle, that corpus, you are eventually going to run out. So it, it might take a thousand years, it might take 10 years, but if, once you start doing that, you've started a habit that does have an end game where you run out. So I always had this instilled in me, my grandparents, my grandmother and grandfather being on a family farm again, they grew up in the Great Depression. So we heard things, but here's what it really was. Grandmother would say, well, when we were in the Great Depression, we, you know, we only had lard sandwiches sometimes, to which we'd laugh to, we, we would laugh because we were just dumb. And we'd say, well, yeah, but today we got butter-flavored Crisco, so we're good. Um, it, <laughs> you know, so the truth is, the lessons were there, but they weren't internalized, but I was still saving. I never was a frivolous spender. But I got to tell you, I, I think my worst spending mistakes really centered around stupid investments. I've made some investments over my life that have been very, very good. I've also made some investments that, man, I tell you, the blood was flowing. <laughs> and that's just part of the course. Weren't savings accounts returning like 16 or 17% during the 80s as well? They were, well, returning you know, 10, 12, 14%. When I bought my first home, I was able to negotiate a 10% interest rate on my house. Oh, man. And actually, I had a home before that. I actually, I moved out when I was 22. I moved into a mobile home. A few years later, I moved into a traditional home. And when I moved into the traditional home, that first move into that traditional home, I got a 10% interest rate. And that was like 1988. 89, uh, 88 or 89. And it was almost unheard of. It was like, oh my God, my wife and I couldn't believe it. We're getting a 10% mortgage. (laughs) God loves me. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we think different today. Yes, I did have some passbook savings accounts, but keep in mind, I knew that long term, the real money to be made is into owning a business. And I've always done that. I mean, I spent 14 months working for somebody else that either wasn't family or my own business. And, it was a very short-term thing as I transitioned between my former life. Basically, I met my wife and then we got married. I spent about 14 months working a real job, if you will. So I can I can honestly say, you know, these guys that want to talk about early retirement took me 14 months and I was out of there. <laughs> but I'm but I've always been in business and, and I've always tried business things and taxes has always been my center hub to try different things. And so I don't want to botch the exact age, but I was thinking you said somewhere around age 27 when you retired on the blog. I'm just curious, do you have any idea what your spending looked like for, you know, actual numbers for a year of spending? I understand you're kind of in the middle of nowhere and you're maybe living in a mobile home and whatever, but I just love to hear that number. I'll give you some numbers that are pretty interesting. It wasn't 27. I was old. I I probably, I never really, I kind of, I hit about 22 and I had a couple hundred thousand put together. And, you know, again, dumb kid. I thought I could just live off of this, sitting in my mobile home, no girlfriend, no wife. I got it made. I'm reading books all day and learning. And then I did a couple tax returns and I'm like, oh Christ, this has got to be the best thing since, you know, since sliced bread. What happened though is I met my wife, we got married, and, and of course, I, it was pretty clear 200000 250000 wasn't going to be enough. So, and by the way, I had done some business on the side with that that had built that up. And if people remember also, 1982 to 1986, when this is happening, was a really, really, really good time in the market. So I put in, I don't know what I put in, but whatever I put in is probably a third of that. And it tripled over this period of time. About 31 or 32, about 32 years of age, I discovered I had put together a million dollar net worth. So my first million came somewhere around that age. 
But when I first started my business, like in 89, 90, 91, my wife and I, since I had the business out of the home, my wife is just as frugal as I am, maybe more so. She went ahead and didn't care for things like we never had cable TV. We weren't early adopters of really expensive stuff. So we didn't need much for a car. We didn't drive anywhere. And my house payment was $554. And that included tax and, insur- or tax and insurance, uh, P&I, T&I. Now, we spent that year about $9,000. So that means we spent about $3,000 outside of housing. That was utilities, food, things like that, <laughs> which means we didn't. But keep in mind, again, it's, it, this is a quite a while ago. We really didn't have to do anything. And being in town, which you know, I'm out in the country now, being in town, I didn't have to drive hardly anywhere. Driving the church on Sunday morning was about the extent of my driving. And the library was a walk away. So I just, you know, hey, I can get my bike bike over to the library. I got everything available. And I was still in this mode where I would work, you know, tax season pretty heavy outside of tax season. I would promote, grow the business a little bit. And I really had seven, eight months of a year each year where I would make some money, but not a lot. And my investments would produce, but I really could spend all day, every day, doing nothing but reading and learning and studying. And at the time, I thought it was just a lot of pleasure. I was enjoying the process. In hindsight, that really made the difference. It's, it's the difference between when you talk to the average accountant and talk to me. So let me, let me preface this so people understand where this is at. I have most people hear what I talk about for taxes and they say, well, you got a pretty firm grasp on that. You got a lot of experience. So where'd you go to college? And the answer is I go, ah, and then I'll say things like, well, University of Wisconsin, which is true. I did. I have no degrees. I'm not a CPA. I'm an enrolled agent. An enrolled agent is a tax professional, not an accounting professional. I have no college degrees. I I passed high school because I, again, a dumb farm boy. I wasn't studying much then. I was just too, too ignorant. After high school, I fell in love with a little more reading and studying and did rather well. But it was that time frame in there for probably about 10 years where I just spent so many hours learning and studying that made the difference that I got, I got five college educations without walking into a college. So I, I maybe have, and again, I don't, I've, I've, I look this up and sometimes publish on it. I'm guessing I have 30, 40, 50 credits. That's not even enough for an associate's and I took everything I liked. So I would take economics. I took some business classes. So I had eco- macro, microeconomics. I had sociology, got to understand people. I took business 101. I took a couple of accounting classes. I took geography and geology because I liked it. I took English so I can actually put words on paper and it's coherent usually. So I took stuff that I liked to take, but I always felt in my mind that I was never going to be the kind of person that got a degree and somebody's going to hire me. I'm going to go out there and educate myself and I'm going to hire the guy that has a student loan and a degree and I'll decide what he gets paid and I'll decide what I'm getting paid by running my own business. So it kind of sounds like you were a fire movement supporter or someone who was living it before the fire movement even existed. Like you were out 14 months in your job. You're like, I don't want to work for someone else. Million dollar net worth by 32. You're just crushing it. I'd like to hear when you discovered and when you kind of figured out there, there are other people living the same lifestyle. Well, actually, it's kind of interesting how it went because uh, the internet came around and I would see stuff and I'd read stuff and some stuff resonated and I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. 
And I was just living my life, you know, in my little world, a little bubble around me. And then I ran, ran across Mr. Money Mustache and his blog. And I thought to myself, well, wow, this guy's a breath of fresh air. He, he knows what the heck's going on. You know, where, where, where was he hiding? You know, long story short, I eventually did his taxes. People read my blog. They might realize Pete and I kind of did a separation, but I still do a lot of consulting. We're still good friends, but my career is going in a little bit different direction and he came up with a good solution. And so people shouldn't read too much into that, but what they should get is that there is a community out there that grew up and sprung up around this. So all the grandpa traders of the world, you know, the grandpa accountants of the world, they got together because they have a forum now and, and, and there's forums all over the internet, but somebody needs to be the hub. And Pete really resonated with his blog, with the 3M blog really resonated and drew in a lot of people. You, you hear some vitriol about it sometimes, you know, like the Suze Orman blow up and that. But the real truth of the matter is Pete's philosophy, what he's teaching is so simple. It's just spend less than you freaking earn. And, you know, Charlie Munger was on the other day on CNBC, and he basically said, what's the, hap- what's, what's the thing that you can do to have happiness tonight? Or what's the trick to a long, happy life? And he had like four or five things, and one of them was just spend less than you earn. You know, you want stress in your life, just Go to the bank and borrow some money and, and, and spend more than you earn, and you'll drive yourself nuts forever. So diving into this, you know, the FIRE movement, I would love to start getting into some of those nitty-gritty kind of tax recommendations that you have for people who are specifically in the situation that we are, who, you know, early 20s, I mean, uh, 20s, early 30s, looking to retire young. What are the tax implications that we really need to watch out for that maybe someone on a normal career path doesn't worry about as much? Well, the thing that I think people worry too much about it, because what's going to happen is when people say early retirement, they say, okay, let's say they do the money mustache plan by 30, you got a million dollars or so, and then you decide to retire and, and the life is good. Okay. I'm good with that. But the thing is, you're not going to stop doing things. When you say retire, you don't mean the traditional word retire in the dictionary, which means used up, worthless, throw it away to the landfill. <laughs> when, when a human being retires, it's called, they go to the landfill, called the graveyard, you're dead. In the interim, you're going to do something. You might travel for a while. You might go fishing and golfing until that becomes a job. But what you're really saying is you're going to stop working in a traditional manner, which I figured out very young. I didn't want to work in a traditional manner. I'm going to be the employer, even if I have to live on peanuts and popcorn. So the truth is for people doing this is they they worry too much. They won't have enough. And I did this for a long, long time. Even when I met the fire community, it was one of the biggest comments people that were doing very well financially and, and were even older. And they say, man, you're still, you, you got this one more year syndrome where you just think you got to have more and do it because you just can't quit. You're worried you're going to run out. And it, it took me a long time to grasp that. Stop worrying about the money. You got more than you're ever going to spend at your spending level. But what you need to do is focus on what makes life joyful. And I did a lot of that too, but I did always fret about it a little bit more than I should. So I think that's the first rule is don't fret about it. You're going to be fine. If if you're smart enough to save money and not spend everything, you put it into some good quality index funds and you let them things ride for a while. The, The next step is then you want to start taking advantage of the tax code. Now, in my opinion, there's really a couple of things you can do. If you're working for somebody else, traditional employment again, what you want to do is you're going to do things like maxing out your 401k at work. You're going to get some matching. The one thing that I caution a little bit, you see some guys going out there, they call them these mega backdoor Ross or that kind of thing. 
technically they're illegal, even though the tax code kind of indicates that it is legal. You see a lot of guys that'll publish in the fire community saying this is really good stuff. And the IRS said so. And if you read IRS publications, it does sound like it's allowed. Unfortunately, the IRS is not a tax authority. They're a bill collector. And if you go to tax court and say, the IRS told me so, you lost before you even open your mouth. <laughs> and, there, and, this is, and there's ample evidence of this with several court cases over the years. Now, what I'm saying is, is that I'm, I still recommend it many times because I think it's hard for the IRS to attack it. They don't like it, but there's not a lot they can do about it. And here's why. If, you have, if you're working for somebody else and you do this and you max it out, that might be a situation where the IRS says, well, okay, this, if this was all there is, we might be able to fight back against this. However, if you're self-employed, have your own business, you can do the very same thing. And on top of that, do something that's called a cash balance account. Well, you have to use the entire SEP limit, basically, if you call it, let's see what's the technical term, the profit sharing SEP contribution limits, which are $56,000 in 2019. You have to use all that up before you start maxing out these money purchase plans, if you will, or cash balance accounts. And when you start stacking that kind of stuff, then it is legal. So the IRS is acting like, well, it's not legal, and then they don't follow through. Well, they got problems with their situation, but so do people that do it. So my response is people want to fund the Roth IRAs to the max. Well, first of all, you can fill your traditional 401k with the matching if you're not over the thresholds for the limits, you can also put in a traditional IRA for deductions. At some particular point, depending on your income level, it doesn't always make sense to keep money going into a traditional IRA because your tax deduction is not going to be big enough. So what you want to do then is you want to start getting money maybe into a Roth. Now, even when I say that, there's really three things you want to look at for retirement planning at a young age, especially if you're looking at retiring early. So you're going to have the traditional type products, the IRAs, 401ks, you're going to have the Roth. And the third thing is you're going to have non-qualified accounts, which is basically just a non-retirement account. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, a Roth IRA, once you get a Roth set up, you need five years before you take money out for it to be a qualified distribution. And that's why everybody needs to start a Roth IRA with even a dollar today. Because if they do, if they, if they started, for example, today, anytime during 2018, all the way to April 15th of this year, 2019, if they put in money into a Roth IRA, their first investment for calendar year 2018, the holding period, that five-year holding period starts January 1st of 2018. Once five years go by, you can take all your own money out at any time without penalty, regardless of age. The profit has to stay in. So the nice thing about that is, is you have a three-pronged approach. The first one is you can take money out of a traditional IRA at any age if you follow some rules. We can touch on that in a little bit. You can get money out of a Roth IRA within reason. You can basically get all your principal out after the first five years, regardless of age, with no penalty. However, once you max these things out, the question then is, what should I do? And I tell people, you know, a non-qualified account never killed anybody. First of all, you put it into a nice index fund over at Vanguard. And yes, it is not tax deductible. And for the most part, the index funds are very lightly taxed because there's hardly no capital gains ever. And the dividends are going to be taxed as long-term capital gains because they're a qualified dividends. When you cash these things in, whether it be early retirement or not, you don't have to worry about all these 
age limits where you don't have to worry about being 59 and a half to take money out. So I think some money should be in non-qualified accounts as well. I still, for most people, I recommend filling these things up. Okay. Fill up your, fill up your 401k, certainly up to the matching level. If you can go further, that's great. If you can put in money into a traditional IRA, that's great. Depending on the facts and circumstances of your income level and your age will determine how far you should go. So when I consult with clients, I don't necessarily go, okay, it's 2019. You can put 19 grand from your paycheck into your 401k and, and we're good to go. That's not always the right answer. It depends on what you make, depends on the facts and circumstances. So Keith, I really want to dig in before we get into some more questions. And I'm sure Justin and I are just going to hammer you with all these questions because you are a wealth of knowledge. But something that we kind of passed on earlier was the one, the mega backdoor Roth and just the backdoor Roth. And then also I want to talk about filling up these buckets. So most people may not even know that you can go past that $19,000 401k contribution limit. Like most people, I don't even know what the percentages are, but I can guarantee you most people don't hit the 56,000 overall limit or whatever the technical name is. So could you talk about just filling up the buckets from the, even though it's not technically legal, the mega backdoor Roth, and then maybe get into the solo 401k and SEP IRA as well? Okay, well, let's look at this a little bit differently. There's certain limits along the way that you can do. So, for example, you alluded to this $56,000 and what that is. The $56,000 is the SEP, profit-sharing SEP contribution limit. You have a couple things you can do. The first thing is you can put money into your 401k, whether it be at work, whether it be an I-401k, which is the solo, up to your profit. So if you have a job and you're making 20000 a year, you can actually withhold 19000 put it into your 401k. Only 1000 comes through on the W-2. 20000 though, is subject to SE tax to the, or to the FICA tax. If you're self-employed, the same deal applies. If you go out there and say, well, I got $20,000, you can put nineteen into it. However, profit sharing can be up to 25%. So let's take this for example. So you work for somebody else that might match 3 4 5%. So you put in twenty thousand, or you put in this nineteen thousand. They might match another four or five thousand dollars. Maybe you get up to twenty five thousand. And now these are your two buckets. But people are people that are really wise to this start saying, "Well, I want to get up to fifty six thousand." Well, when I say that it's illegal, make sure we understand what I mean by backdoor Roth. There's two backdoor Roths. The first backdoor Roth, which also the IRS says we don't like, but is I would argue it's very legal. And that is if you put money into a non-deductible traditional IRA and immediately convert it to a Roth, no tax implications, ta-da, no matter what your income limit, you get to put this money into the Roth. You can put 6000 in 2019, you can put $6,000 into a IRA. If you're an old guy like me, 50 and older, you can put 7000 in. This $56,000 cap that we have that people that are in the know understand includes what you withhold from your paycheck for your 401k, what the matching is, and if you're still under $56,000, you can add, you can do an IRA if you're underneath the limits, okay? So if there's if you're underneath, underneath the contribution limits, you're more than welcome to do that. So just as long as you don't go over $56,000. And again, a little bit more for old guys. Now, that is still, now, then people come up with this idea that they want to do the mega backdoor Roth. So if your employer allows in-service kind or in service transfers, what that means is this. For argument's sake, 
we're going to just speak these numbers out so we'll round them to make it easy. Let's assume you take $19,000 out of your paycheck, withhold it, and you put it into your 401k. Your employer matches another $6,000, you're up to $25,000. So you have another $31,000 underneath the $56,000 limit. What you're allowed to do if the plan administrator allows it is you can take another $31,000 out of your paycheck, non-deductible. And then immediately when you do this each paycheck or monthly, or usually you do it right away, is you then do an in-service transfer to your Roth IRA, which means you can put in $31,000 into your Roth IRA. That's the part where the IRS gets a little bent out of shape. But to be quite honest, since there is no additional tax right now, that's why the IRS doesn't fight it because it's a non-deductible thing and it's going to be only tax or tax-free in the future. And for that reason, the IRS maybe doesn't like it, but I think it's still a good tool and that's why I still recommend it because there's no court ruling that I'm aware of. In fact, there is no court ruling. There is no court ruling saying I can't do it. It's the IRS. And remember, the IRS is not a tax authority. Their attorneys might be, but the IRS is a bill collector. So if the IRS says something, I have to, as a tax authority, because that's what I am as an enrolled agent, I look at this and I look at the tax code, I look at the regulations, I look at the other tax authorities like CCH, RIA, attorneys, CPAs, and other enrolled agents, and I come to the conclusion then, if it makes sense to do this, and my attitude is, you may read that this is not allowable, but my attitude is, if you're able to do it, I think it still works because I think if it does end up in court someday, I think the IRS has a tough road to hoe on this one. It doesn't mean they're going to lose, but I think that if they did lose because so many people do it, what they're probably going to do as a solution is say, everybody that did it is grandfathered in. We're going to leave you alone, but anybody that does it from now on, we're going to get upset about. And they do this a lot. So I think that I think that as long as the tax court doesn't say you can't do it or a regulation comes out saying you can't do it, the IRS just having a, a, an IRS commissioner saying we don't like it is not tax law. So I, I'm not telling people not to do it. Those are the buckets, by the way, eighteen or 19000 plus matching from the employer, plus you can go up higher to 56000 But that's not the end. There's still one huge, huge bucket which are sometimes called money purchase. Usually I call them cash balance account or cash balance plans. These cash balance plans allow you to go up to as much as 300000 or more dollars per person. The older you are, the more you can put in. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but if you really want to put a lot of money into a retirement account that is tax deferred, that's the way to do it. Just say cash balance account and you can Google that kind of stuff. I'll probably write a blog post on it. And in fact, if you want, I'll actually throw out, look up Kravitz Inc. out of Chicago. K-R-A-V-I-T-Z Inc. KravitzInc.com. They're out of Chicago. They do some cash balance plans. They're pretty good at it. And they can help you do this. Now, if you're self-employed, it's much, much easier. So let's go back to the buckets as a self-employed person, which is what I am. There's a couple of tools. I can do things like a simple plan, which is, it's 13000 for 2019. So... Then you get SEP plans. SEP plans are really going to be kind of like a solo 401k, the 401k. Those rules are all the same. But when you're self-employed, if you have a lot of employees, it's hard to do. But if you only have you and your spouse and and very few people, you can do profit sharing up to 25%. So what does that mean? So you have a business and you read my blog and you read one of my first posts where I talk about being an escort. 
And you got this business that's doing about 200 grand a year in profit. So you say, well, Keith said about 50% is maybe where my reasonable compensation should be. Now, these numbers are kind of fluid, but let's, for argument's sake, say $100,000 is your reasonable compensation. $100,000 comes through on a K-1 to your personal return, no self-employment or FICA tax. The $100,000 that comes through on your W-2, you can take $19,000 out for your 401k. You can also then give yourself as a business expense 25% of that W-2 wage as a matching, if you will. It's profit sharing, which means $25,000. So what you have then is you have $25,000 and $19,000 So now you're getting $44,000 right out of the gate. So you're getting closer to the $56,000. And of course, listeners to this could start playing with the numbers, bring out their calculator, and you can kind of look where the sweet spot is to maximize this. Keep in mind, under this scenario, you have a business with $200,000. You got a W-2 that said $100,000 minus the 19, so you report 81. Your $100,000 business profit that flows through to you only shows 75 because wait a minute, you had a $25,000 expense of profit sharing that got paid into your retirement account. So you have basically 75 into 81. So you end up having 156,000 of reportable income and you had 200,000 though when you started. You keep all the, you, in other words, you keep all the 200,000, but you only have to report 156 because what well, you report it all, but you only have 156 mixed into your actual tax scenario. I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up on one of the kind of first things you were talking about, one of the simpler activities, which is just where you take and you immediately convert a traditional into a Roth. So what's the benefits of that? Other than the people who can't directly put into a Roth, what's the benefit of immediately converting a traditional to a Roth? And that's the only people that do it. Okay. So somebody comes into my office and they say, geez, I'm making 400 grand a year. I can't do a Roth, right? I say, do you want to do some screwing around? Drop in uh, 6,000 or 7,000, depending on age, into a non-deductible traditional. And before you leave the institution, tell them to quit convert that to a Roth, would they? And the reason why I say it's a little bit of horsing around, because when your income gets that high, there is no deduction, but the tax, the growth is tax-free. And it can become meaningful but remember, when you're dealing with, if you have a $400,000 income, playing around with five or six or $7,000 is not a lot. And it's really a personal <laughs> choice as far as I'm concerned. But you know, it does add up. You know, when you're young, it's much more valuable. If you're 60 and you want to do it, I say, fine, it's okay. Now you're 25 or 30 and you want to do it. Well, you got 30 years of tax-free growth. I'm going to argue it's worth messing around with that $6,000. I'm curious about any situations where maybe people need to watch out for where they shouldn't just automatically assume like, hey, we got married, so we need, we should start filing jointly. Like, What are the situations where you still want to file individually? Filing jointly is the default that most people are going to want to do. Sometimes people come into me, they get married, and they want to know if they should file separately. With rare exception, filing separately will cost more money. The only time you want, there's two times you want to do it. In the rare instance where you might be able to benefit by filing separately, you can go ahead and do that. The time when you want to do it, even if it costs you more money, is when you are concerned that your spouse is doing some malfeasance, you know, tax fraud, maybe some embezzlement, 
If you sign a joint return, you're jointly liable. And I know I see you laughing there a little bit, but you know, this stuff comes up and I've had people walk into my office, they close the door and they say, well, my spouse and this and that kind of stuff. And it's like, you file a separate return because if you sign that knowing these facts and proving that you don't know is so hard. So if you suspect, then you want to file a separate return. Usually there's a divorce coming down the pike as well. But the only other instance you would do it is when people get mad at each other and they don't get along. But that's usually a foolish reason. But some people can save money, but it's rare. One in maybe 500. So Keith, we've been focusing a lot on how to get your money into a Roth, whether it's been like through a backdoor Roth or a mega backdoor Roth or all these other tax advantage accounts. I'd love if we could kind of get into some tax loss and tax gain harvesting, what those mean and how someone can implement them, especially someone who is early retired and making and maybe making less income than a traditional person. So first things first, let's look at the way Warren Buffett got rich. He did it in non-qualified accounts, not in retirement accounts. And in fact, the richest people you will ever meet didn't do it through the way the fire community does all these things to save tons and tons of money through retirement accounts. People that come in that have 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 million dollars, these people aren't, they're using some of these things, but they're using non-qualified accounts. So for example, if you're in an index fund, yes, you're going to get some dividends coming out. Basically, the dividend yield on the S&P right now is about 2%. If you don't sell, you don't pay tax in the game. So Warren Buffett bought Coca-Cola stock back when I got out of high school, around 1982 or something, and He's got a capital gain in there that would just about give a guy a heart attack if you sold it, but he's not going to, okay? So if I buy stocks, so people like to watch my blog and they say, geez, Keith, you own a lot of Altria stock. And, and I do, and I get a nice dividend and the stock has gone up a lot. My original shares that I bought in the 80s are in the mid to low single digits is my basis. So the dividend yield is, the dividend per year is actually in excess of what I pay for my first shares every year. When I die, that stock doesn't get the kids or somebody gets the stock. They don't get my basis. They get the basis on date of death. So it's a step up. That's the first thing. By putting in a non-qualified account, if you're not trading and playing with your money, which you shouldn't be doing anyway, you have a huge tax advantage, which is not 100% like a Roth, but pretty darn close to it. And when you do sell, if it's a long-term capital gain, it's at or excuse me, when you sell, it's a long-term capital gain at long-term cap gain rates, which are smaller. So let's go to this tax loss harvesting thing. I have a couple of posts on this in my blog. I am not a fan. And I have people that go to like, was it Wealthfront, is it? There's a couple of them out there. Understand, if you have a big capital gain and you want to offset it, tax loss harvesting can help, no doubt about it. However, you're limited to $3,000 per year against other income. So you drop hundred grand in and they give you 20000 in tax loss harvesting the first year. You can only use 3000 bucks. The rest gets carried forward. That's the first problem. Second problem is they charge you for this little piddly gain. Third problem is if you die, remember our step up in basis? That's right. Now, here's where it gets real dicey. There's a, like nine or ten states that are called marital property states, which are like Wisconsin. All the other states are what are called equitable property states. Here's what happens in these states. And the Wealthfront and all these guys don't want to talk about. And the tax loss harvesting guys don't want to talk about. Let's say my wife and I own stock. Okay, I got my, my, my Philip Morris. And let's say I go out there and I start playing around and I do some tax loss harvesting. Now, Wisconsin's a marital property state. So as a marital property state, it's technically as if my wife and I own half of everything, even though I have it all in my name, let's say. 
if I have a $200,000 tax loss harvest that I have in my tax return that I can use against other gains and that I can use $3,000 per year in addition to the other gains until it's used up, when I die, my wife does not get $200,000. She gets $100,000. She loses half on the spot. But if you think that's bad, which state are you guys from? Massachusetts. Oh, you're going to love this. You guys are in an equitable property state. Let's just say for argument, your wife is doing a little trade in here. She makes a lot of money in the market and she says, okay, I'm going to do some tax loss harvesting. She has a million dollars of tax loss harvesting and you're thinking and you're rubbing your hands. I got some stocks that I'm going to sell. You're okay. And when you do the return, you have a million dollar gain. You're going to offset it. But your wife dies. You're in an equitable property state. The tax loss carry forward is in her name, not yours, you get zero. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so now part of this would be mitigated by a step up or step down in basis, but this is not the panacea that it's being made out to be. And the other thing that I have is as an accountant, I get to see everybody's return. So people that are using all these tax loss harvesting, robo investing things, I'm the guy doing the taxes and I don't know about anybody else, but I got a calculator and it works rather well. And as I'm putting these into the tax returns, they are not outperforming as they were intended to. They are giving people tax losses on their tax return that are minor at best. They're paying a fee that doesn't hardly even cover the cost of the tax break. And their rate of return is abysmal. And I've seen this with many, many clients bringing this in. I won't touch it. I won't do it. Now, that doesn't mean I won't tax loss harvest myself. I may own 15 or 20 stocks and I might have my non-qualified index funds. So maybe I'll buy some Philip Morris, or maybe I'll buy some J&J, maybe I'll buy Microsoft. So let's say I buy Microsoft and it decides to go down because that, that happens a lot. It's a great company at a great price, but it gets to be a better price. I might just sell it and then wait 30 days and buy it back. Or if I'm in a mutual fund, I may go from an S&P to a total market fund and I'm going to capture that loss. I didn't pay anything for that. So I'm willing to do it. It's no skin in the game. I will not pay for the service of tax loss harvesting because it, except for the rarest of circumstances, such as you sold a rental property, you have a nice big gain, and you would like to not pay tax on that gain, that would give you some immediate benefit. But for the average person coming into my office, I'm looking at this, it's like you're underperforming, number one, and you're paying for the service and you're not getting the tax break you think you are. So before we move forward, I'd love to talk about tax gain harvesting and how if you can stay in that 0% capital gains bracket, how you can really take advantage and just crush that tax gain harvesting game. Now, that's something I do like. <laughs> and in fact, I encourage that even people that have no clue what it is. I have grandma and grandpa Jones coming in and they sit down in front of me and they're in a 0% tax bracket. You got to go out and harvest gains because what I'm doing is if you die before you take the money out, no harm, no foul, step up in basis, we're good. But what about if you're going to live? And, and that's what we're, that's our goal. We yeah. want to live. So you, and again, and you guys, if you're looking at this early retirement, this makes a big deal. So you may take a couple gap years where you want to do a little traveling, not much income. Well, if you're married, you're getting a $24,000 standard deduction. So without considering anything else, you want to have at least $24,000 of gain. And if you're not going to get it from dividends or something else, then you certainly want to capture some of those gains. When you let me make this clear, when you tax loss harvest, you cannot reinvest in an identical 
product. So if you buy IBM and it goes down and you sell it and then you buy it back, it's a wash sale. You got to wait 30 days, which puts a lot of risk. It doesn't go back up before you buy it back. But when it comes to tax gain harvesting, you can sell you. So you have IBM, you bought it at $100 per share, it goes up to whatever it is, and you say, geez, Keith, I need to have $20,000 of income because that $20,000 is in the 0% tax bracket. And we're going to go into something else you're going to like a little bit better too. And that is we're going to sell that stock and we're going to get that gain. And then we're going to buy it back the very next second. There's no skin in the game. The IRS says that's not a wash sale. It's a gain. Go ahead and take it. Now, when I'm talking about the standard deduction of 24000 What jumps into my mind, which I almost forgot, is that you do realize that for a married couple, it's like $76,800. Anything below that for a long-term cap gain is 0%. So there is plenty of opportunities, depending on your facts and circumstances, where you're going to look at this information, you're going to look at your situation and say, I'm going to review each year. And when I get to a certain time of the year and I say, I need to have some income because it's at 0%. Now, you may have an income or no income tax, but your income tax being zero on capital gains is much, much higher. So the opportunity, especially for the early retirees, is huge, which really brings me back to my first thing when we started this out. And that is, do you really want to maximize all your retirement plans? And the answer is maybe. So you can put all your money into retirement plans and you can get money out using Section 72T at any age you want. You can get money out without a problem, within reason, with no penalty, but it's taxable. Now, if you're going to do some tax gain harvesting or if you're going to use the current tax code where you can have massive, in my opinion, massive capital gains and pay no income tax, I'm a pretty happy guy. Now, I'm my income's pretty good and it is higher than that, but my spending is not. So if, if you're living on 30, 40, 50 grand a year and you're in early retirement and you have non-qualified accounts, the only issue you have is dividends. You know, it's not, it, dividends are the only issue and interest and a few things like that. Some things that might come into the, into the mix and make a mess of things, but some number is going to be in the 0% tax bracket most likely if you don't have any other, any other income which will be under the tax limit for the long-term capital gains, which means there is a huge planning point. And that's where you sit down with your accountant every year, you give them a couple hundred bucks, which is about what you pay to Wealthfront every year, and you will save more in taxes. Doing, You'll walk out with three, 4,000 in tax savings right out of the gate. You'll make a 1,000% in your money instantly versus if you put it into a Wealthfront, they're doing the opposite and you're not getting the benefit. So if you're, and if, if you are under that limit, you're in that 0% bracket and you're not using it to harvest capital gains, is this a time where you want to convert those traditional accounts to Roth accounts or does it matter? There's several different strategies. Most of the time what I see in my office, because when I have clients that are coming from the internet, basically from the fire community around the country, they have a lot of issues that are different than the average person. My local client, what most people see on a local level, because they're not going to see that many fire people every every day. And what they're going to see is people that are coming in and they're below the threshold and they got a lot of money in traditional IRAs. Now, keep in mind, the fire community is unique because they load these traditional IRAs right to the max. And if I told you what I had in my traditional retirement accounts, I'm 54 years old at this time. My RMD, when I hit 70 and a half, is going to be 
it's unconscionable because those I know how many more times it's going to double. I'm going to double it three more times. Every seven to 10 years, you're going to double it while I'm 54. Go to 64 to 71. I'm going to get two doublings for sure, maybe a bit more. We're talking eight figures. Run the RMD on that sucker. Okay, so I, I can even give you I can give you an idea. What I'm looking at approximately divide by twenty six point two. My my RMD if, if the stock market does what it averages, and I'm one of these fire guys, and when it wasn't even given the name of fire, and I just saved and I, and I don't want to pay tax because I'm a tax guy. I'm really smart. Max out mine, max out my wife. My RMD for when I hit seventy and a half, my first required distribution five hundred and seventy two thousand. Oh my God. How do you tax plan around that? Well, I know what I'm going to do. If the laws don't change, I can take $100,000 per year of my RMD when I hit 70 and a half and give it to a charity. Okay. What about the other 472? Between if I ever quit and stop making money, I could start doing it, but I'll I'll never get through it. So the, the uniqueness of the fire community and the people that are early retiring is that They'll have a lot of money, but they're going to they're going to lose the ability to control the tax situation. And the problem with that is, is that, yes, you'll have a lot of money and and it's not going to really hurt you because you have a lot of money. You're going to keep a lot of money, but it's going to irritate the living daylights out of you. And you're you're going to start questioning how smart that really was. So what I tell people today is. Don't get too excited about maxing these. If you want to put 19000 into your 401k or an I-401k, if you want to go 25% of your money as a profit sharing plan in your business, I'm good with that. I do sometimes recommend cash balance accounts for people that are making seven figures or so, two, three million dollar a year guys, four million dollar a year guys. Those kind of people, I think sometimes it's worth it because they're just such high tax bracket and there is a concept that it works. But I, for a lot of people, it's very common for people to come in to me and say, I want to consult Keith. Let me look, you'll look at what I have. And when they give me their paperwork, they have, you know, $4.8 million, which is great. They're ready to retire. You're good to go. And they got 37000 in non-qualified money and all the rest is in qualified money. Well, it's not that it's wrong. It's that there's no tax planning. There's there's nothing to tax plan. If it's in a Roth, it's tax-free, good for you. If it's in a traditional, too bad, so sad. RMDs are coming right around the corner, and when they do, I, my job is to say this is what it is. And by the way, if you want to do this, you can go, You just type in 72T calculator into Google, and bank rate usually comes up first. It's a good good one. And just tell them that your age is 70 and a half or do an RM, RMD calculator. And Take your investments in your retirement now. So take, so for example, the stock market basically goes up about 7% per year plus the inflation rate. So you get about 10%, which means every seven years, the stock market doubles. Okay. Some years, sometimes faster, sometimes slower. So if you're 30 years old and you go to 40 to 50 to 60 and you say, well, I'm not going to touch my traditional IRA. I'll play around with my Roth and I can do that. You're going to have 30 years. So you're going to go from 7 to 14 to 21 to 28. You have four doublings. If you put in $100,000 and that's all you had, it goes to 2 to 4 to 8 to $1.6 million. And then you'll go to $3.2 million before you hit 70 and a half. So your RMD on $100,000 at age 30. It's going to be an RMD on $3.2 million when you're 70. And by the way, that would be by 26.2 is going to be a $122,137 check the first year. And it goes up from there. Again, 
you have no tax planning tips whatsoever. You're already over the threshold for probably everything. All your Social Security, 85% of it under current law, is going to be taxed. And when you say things like, what is my tax bracket? Well, you're not going to be in the top tax bracket, but you're certainly not in the lowest one. And there's no way around it other than to take a huge hit and convert it all at once, which means you take your $3.2 million and pay your $1 million in tax on it so you can keep the other two point six growing tax-free. So that's my spiel, by the way, on that. So, and not to just beat this to death too much, but is that why for like, say that 35 years that you're retired before something like the required distributions would kick in, you would be, especially if you're married and you've got that, you know, $76,000 cap or whatever it is, that you'd be steadily transitioning this traditional money into Roth money so you can avoid that situation. If you can do it younger, my problem, and, and, and this happens to a lot of guys and the ladies too. I put a lot of money into my retirement accounts. I wanted to save money on my taxes. And now I'm getting to a point where I'm not maxing out my own anymore as much because it's already a problem, but I can't convert it because my tax bracket's already high. I got a business that's very successful and I don't see myself slowing down because I like what I do. I mean, if you like what you do, I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, you know, beer in <laughs> one hand, remote in the other, I guess that's fine for some, but I'm good. I, I do what I like. And so I want to keep doing it and I'm going to make money doing it because it's in demand. And, you know, as, as your listeners might hear, my voice is hoarse. I have a little bit of a cold, but you do it because you enjoy it. And so you're always going to make money. And that's where I go back to the original concept. You can max these things out and it makes a difference at a younger age, especially if you take the early retirement route. But don't be wedded to maxing that out at all costs because you have to look at all years. So let me put it this way. You come into my office as a tax client. If you are coming to my office to talk to me for consulting, I look at your tax return. And when I give advice, I do not include the best answer for this year or next year. I give the best answer for all years involved, which means from now to the day you die. So I'm looking at all years, how much tax do you pay and how much do you get to keep after all years? And many accountants don't like to do that because it, it does take a little bit of crystal ball and it does take the ability to think longer term. But when you take money out, people don't understand if you put a husband and wife put 5,000 each into an IRA and they're 20 years old. And I don't have this in front of me here, but I did a blog post on this and, and people are saying, well, you know, Keith, you got about 15 million there. So how the hell do you get so much money? Well, you see when I was 18 and now I'm 54 and it doubled like 15 times or whatever, you know, seven times. And that first 10,000 back then it was like $3,000 for IRAs. Yes. My wife and I, the first year we put 3000 in each. That was the max. That first $3,000 is well into the six figures. It's over a hundred grand. I mean, that's 6,000 doubled five times to 12 to 24 to 48 to what, 96 to almost 200,000, give or take. I didn't, I didn't step it out, but I know what the market has done and I know that that's where it goes. And you're no different. Any 20 year old can do this. It's not what Pete did in Mr. Money Mustache is not incredible. What he does is what I preached before I met Pete. And that is, I always tell people they screw up until they're 50. Then they get nervous when they hit their 50th birthday and say, oh my God, I'm going to go out. I'm going to retire in 15 years. I better get serious. In 15 years, ta-da, they're retired. Pete just started early. He just said, <laughs> hey, why do I act like I'm 50 now? And he said, well, I'm 30. I'm ready to go. I'm done. And that's what the early retirement community is doing. It's not that you can't retire in 10 and 15 years. Everybody does it. Very few start young like me, and then they just, they're just they too knuckleheaded to quit. You get some really big numbers when you do that. So people shouldn't sweat the small stuff. But here's my thing. 
stay out of debt as best you can. If you have debt, get out of it because that's that's the acid that destroys the vessel which contains it. When you're not paying debt, it costs almost nothing to live. Invest in a variety of things. Put it into index funds if you want to put a little money into some, maybe some individual stocks if you're into that kind of thing. Maybe a small percentage of your portfolio. Have a retirement account, yes. Have your 401k at work, at least with the matching. It's free money. If you want to do a Roth as well, or maybe a traditional, depending on the tax purposes, will it affect it? You know, you might have an earned income credit, maybe a savers credit. You have to play into the mix and decide if it makes sense. But people are toxically afraid of putting money into a non-qualified account. I dropped, I bought 2,000 shares of Altria when it was down here, and it went above 50 today. That's going to be a dividend for the next 12 months of $6,440 on top of what I already have. That's, I don't care if I pay more tax. I want the game when you get those big numbers is to just plain earn it and do the right thing. Yes, I could put more money in, in a retirement account. If I did that, my problem is that 70 and a half, Christ, I'll have to take $2 million out every year. I mean, at that point, <laughs> you know, at some particular point, that game's got to stop. And the next game you play then is, well, I'm going to let my stack grow bigger. Grandpa accountant said, don't take off the pile. Well, I agree with him if you have under a million dollars. But when you start getting to eight figures, you start doing an awful lot of charity work. You start giving money to worthy causes. What Jordan Peterson would say, uh, end needless suffering. Do what Bill Gates did, but just do it on a smaller scale. And that, that can be our value lesson. We can, when you start early and do this, you can build a huge net worth. The tax advantages are there, but they shouldn't overrule intelligent financial planning. And that's coming from a tax guy. And then you can do things that will make a difference in the world. If you have $100,000, yes, you can help out your church. Yes, you can help out United Way or Goodwill or maybe a crisis center locally or a homeless shelter locally. But if you have $10 million or $20 million, you can drop them hundred grand at a time and do it consistently. You're going to make a difference where lives are going to change radically. And I argue that you can't do that that easy with a retirement account. It causes other problems. With a non-qualified account in the mix, you have three things, traditional Roth, non-qualified. By looking at your personal facts and circumstances, you can plan for not just early retirement, but what comes after that. So the goal is let's build all this money and now I'm going to retire by this age because I hit the 4% rule, okay, 25 times. My spending's X amount of dollars times 25. Or, so you have a $25,000 annual expenditures times 25. You, get a, you need a million bucks, you're good to go you're not going to use it all up. It doesn't work that way. You're going to make a dollar somewhere in here and then it's going to compound. People forget that they hit early retirement. That's the goal. And they forget about what are you going to do then? Well, I'm going to travel. Well, good luck with that. That becomes a job after a couple of years. And you see guys in the fire community with blogs saying, hey, I retired and three years later, they're going back and getting a job. It's not that they're stupid people. It's just that they found out that golfing or fishing all day or traveling gets old. A gap year is fun. Taking a four-month vacation just because you can is a lot of fun. When you do it every day after a while, it's like, you know, you know, I really like doing that home building. And that's kind of what Pete does. He likes to do construction. He likes to do his blog. He has his, you know, 3M headquarters. I'm sitting here still playing on tax returns and doing podcasts during tax season. Well, why do I do it? Well, because you can hear by my voice. My voice is hoarse and I still have this up-tempo. Why? Because I know that everything I do here makes a difference in somebody's lives. It makes a difference for you guys, your listeners, my clients. And the alternative is I could do what I did when I was in my 20s and do almost nothing and spend a lot of time just reading. 
And I love to do that. But I got to tell you, the reason why I work so hard afterwards, you, you get a callus on your ass after you sit that long. You know, you, <laughs> you know, reading is great, but at some point, the true gift in life is, is to have these resources and to see the people and how their lives are changed fundamentally for the better. And that really, really makes a difference. That's the whole value of life, by the way, in my opinion. I loved that. I really liked that tangent there. All right. So Keith, this question comes from my mom and I know she would kill me if I didn't ask you. So are there any hacks or just tax workarounds when you're hiring your family to do work for you, whether it's in a business or in rental properties, just anything at all? There's a lot of things you can do and it's going to depend on the age of your children. So if they are minor children, you can pay them and there is no FICA tax. So, and that's a huge one, but here's the catch. You can't be an entity or an S corp, you know, like an S corp, C corp. If you're a disregarded entity, it's okay. So if you have rental properties and you're an LLC, you're going to want to be treated as a disregarded entity. And if the kids are under 18, you can then pay them. That is earned income. And if it's under $12,000, there's going to be no tax because that's their standard deduction, which allows them to fund an IRA traditional or Roth, by the way, you want to be, you, you want it in a Roth because they're not going to pay any tax. Same thing applies to a small business deductible for your sole proprietorship. If you're an LLC or a, or a straight S corp, you know, you elect to be an S corp, doesn't matter how old the kids are, then you must withhold as any other employee. But there is a significant advantage, especially for minors. Now I had it made, my business is an S corp, but my farm is not. So my kids, when they're growing up, they earn money working on the farm and they did farm chores. And here's the one catch I will give. When you pay the kids, if they don't have to file, you don't have to. But if you want to fund a retirement account with that money, you have to file even if the return is a zero. So let's do it this way. You pay the kids $8,000, let's say. It's under the standard deduction, no income tax. And you have to tell the IRS on that tax return, it's one of these things that go electronically under the tax return. You have to tell the IRS, yes, they have 8000 of earned income, of which they're going to put 6000 of that into a Roth IRA. I hope mom doesn't beat you up with that answer. What was the one she wanted? <laughs> I think she'll like it. Keith, I love that last little bit you had there where you're just kind of going over like, that's what the meaning of life is. That's what happiness is. And, it, and also talking about we look at this as a way to retire early, which can kind of seem selfish, but it also opens up these these huge possibilities for you to do better in the world because you've set yourself up with so much wealth. But before we go, I just want to ask, you know, are there any last little tips that you want to throw in? Any last nuggets of advice? Another piece of advice that I think is probably maybe maybe the most important part of this whole conversation is don't believe anything I say my blog says or anything else. And I say that jokingly on one hand, but I'm very serious. And here's why. Everybody is unique. The facts and circumstances have to rule. So when I say, well, you don't want to do this. Well, you might have that one outlier where you should do it. What I'm saying is you should be familiar with it. So you want, you want to read my blog. You want to read Pete's blog. You want to read Get Rich Slowly and all these other guys out there. They're producing tons of great material and you should be familiar with it, but just don't expect that you're going to do all of it. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. All right. So Keith, for people who are just tax fiends, they want to figure out how to optimize. They want to figure out more about your story. Just maybe talk to you. Where's the best place that they can get in contact with you? Yeah. The best place to, to contact me would just go to the Wealthy Accountant blog. There is a contact page. I will preface by saying I'm, I'm not really accepting a whole lot in the way of new clients. So don't rush me for that though. I do have a 
new link on my blog for finding a local tax professional. And it's slowly growing. And hopefully that will help other people listening to this and reading my blog find somebody that's like me. But you can certainly contact me for media appearances, things like that. If you do have a quick question, sometimes I do have time and I do actually answer some of them. I try to at least respond to all my contacts, but sometimes that's not possible. And if you give me a really long-winded tax question, my eyes roll back in my head and it's like, I don't have time to research. It's tax season and (laughs) I just never get back to it. So, but the Wealthy Accountant blog is the best place to get a hold of me. If not there, Facebook, I have a couple. There's a Wealthy Accountant group as well as a business page. But if you send me a contact from the blog, it goes right to my desktop. And Keith, we always ask our guests their number one tangible tip for people on their path to financial independence? It's got to be perseverance. I think if you're going to be wealthy, if you're going to be successful in a marriage, if you're going to be successful in a business, I go back to a video I once saw of this guy that was with Warren Buffett and the, and the interviewers asking this guy what his, his tip was. And Warren Buffett had funded this guy and he said, the genius we had is we never gave up. And you know that's really what it's about you're going to have the setbacks. And the more money you have, the more blood you let out when it happens. I mean, I got stories that, man, it's just unreal. But the thing is, you're going to have the setbacks. When you start out and it's small and there's very, there's very little money there and you're trying to live on a, a meager amount of money, then the tire goes in the car or the refrigerator dies. It's oh, Christ, here we go again. And it just, there's going to be the setbacks. Always stay the course, get more determined, learn from every experience. But when you're doing a business, when you're, whether you're doing a business like mine, like you guys have a podcast, whether you have rental properties, you have a side gig, just be consistent. Don't buy the BS. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, if you will, that People are going to tell you stuff that's insane, uh, why you can't do it. They're either jealous or they just, or they're ignorant. And and that's not, I guess it is to be mean. People will do that. And there's always a thousand people to tell you why it's not going to work or, and when you already are successful, some people will do some nasty things. And that's just part of life. Never give up, be perseverant, and you'll attract people just like you, which are going to be fire-minded type people. It's just the way it is. And then and you'll be happy then. And if you don't listen to the world, you'll be happy and you'll, you'll have more money than you ever need. Awesome. All right, Keith. So this is the final question of the podcast and definitely the most important. And this is the <laughs> wild card question where I don't prepare. Justin doesn't prepare, which means that you definitely are not prepared for this question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it was something actually that just inspired this question. Like we literally just think of it on the fly. You said you had some crazy stories about people just messing up with their money or messing up with their taxes. I want to hear the worst, the most vicious, like hundreds of thousands of dollars lost tax or money story that you've experienced. I'll tell you a real short one from mine. I'm going to tell you one from a client where he didn't lose money, but he really did. And both are lessons. One, right now, if you go to my blog, you'll notice I have this do-it-yourself tax program. And when I started it out, I thought I was going to be the smartest guy in the world. I had this thing going. It was still kind of in beta. So I went out there and I spent 80 grand in advertising and I brought in $3,000 in revenue. So I took a $77,000 kick to the (laughs) shin. The good news is, is I had enough cash flow in my business. I didn't have a negative year, but it certainly wasn't as as, as good as it could have been. The one case though, and there's a lot of cases where people lost a lot of money and it could be through a lot of different circumstances, but the one that will be applicable virtually to every listener of this podcast, and that is this, I had a client that invested, this client left me many years back in the nineties already. He started investing with Peter Lynch with the Magellan Fund and at Fidelity. 
people remember who Peter Lynch is. He had these great big returns. He had, he's like the Warren Buffett of mutual fund guys. He had just incredible returns. And while he was doing this, this client came in and he had money in from like the late 70s, early 80s, built up some money. When the stock market crashed in 87, he sold. And when the market went and went back up to a new high, he bought it back in. And I told him, don't do this. Are you insane? Well, then in 91, <laughs> somewhere around there, you had the Iran-Kuwait war was going on with the first Bush as president. The market went down. He sold again. And when it went back up, I'm just like, Jesus Christ, guy, can you stop? During the time he was invested, if he had not made those two trades, he would have made 22% per year on average. Take a guess what his rate of return was on each year on average because he made two trades. It was a positive number. Oh, it's positive number? Two. Two percent. He oh, made man. money market rates at today's money. Back then in the 80s, the money market was six, seven percent. He would have made more money if he'd have put it in the money market and not played the market because he had the best money manager on the planet. And he made two trades and he got shaken out of the market because the market got him scared. And then he bought back when everything was good again. Two trades, 90, 91 range and the 87 crash and then the, the rebound. And he took 10 to 15 years of investing and had such subpar results. At least it was positive for Christ's sake. But oh my God, to me, I have many stories I can tell and I tell a lot of them on the blog. But this one client, he actually got mad and left. He wouldn't come back. And it's like, I have to tell him the truth, right? I can't encourage him to do this. So I don't know what happened to him, but he, he spent 15 years of his life, made 2% per year, and he was with Peter Lynch for crying out loud. Well, Keith, thank you so much for giving us some of your time, especially during tax season, which I'm sure is crazy for you, but it's content that we really want to get to our listeners during this pivotal time of the year. I hope people go out there and check out your blog, and we look forward to interacting with you more going forward. No problem. Thank you for having me on. Man, Cody, I'm glad we brought Keith on because you can definitely tell he is the tax guru. What do you think? Absolutely. And he makes me look like an absolute scrub. What was it? Something like six figures when he was 22? <laughs> he was working for four years when he was 18 to 22, just investing like crazy. And he had a multiple six-figure net worth. I just thought that was a crazy part of his story that I'd never even heard before. Yeah, and he only really worked for someone else for, what, 14 months of his life? I mean, you want to talk about an accelerated route to financial independence. And I think the cool thing is where that came from too. It wasn't like somebody had this huge business they handed down to him and he did that for 14 months, got rich and got out. You know, he was just a farmer in Wisconsin. The family farm goes bankrupt. Then he starts working for his dad in this agricultural repair business where he starts doing random employees taxes and he just turned this into its own beast. But with the typical narrative, someone who leaves their job after 14 months, like he did, they might be called lazy, but Keith is someone who was studying tax books in his spare time when he was retired for, was it multiple months or multiple years? He was just reading this stuff for fun, trying to stay at tip-top performance level. Like, just such an inspiring and motivated guy. Yeah, I think the cool part is, like, you get to listen to his story, and you hear all these things he did and all this expertise he has, and then he reveals, like, you know, I don't ever even have a college degree. He would just, like you said, he spent so much time reinvesting in himself and just reading books. Go to colleges and take these random classes that, like, pertain to what he was interested in, but didn't worry with the full, you know, curriculum. I think he said something like he had five college experiences without ever going to college. And it's just because he keeps doing the same thing. He keeps learning. He keeps growing and he keeps motivating himself to get to the next level, to outperform the next guy. And that definitely shows. And like we said before, he's just so passionate about this. 
His voice was completely hoarse, and he was just going full speed ahead for an hour and a half with us. I mean, that's going to be some kind of dedication. And you can tell this is definitely someone who knows what he's talking about if he was able to become Mr. Money Mustache's on accountant. So, Cody, what were some of the specific things that he called out that you thought were interesting? Yeah, definitely. So I think everyone should probably go back and listen to this once or twice if there's some things that you really want to know better. But depending on your tax bracket, depending on how much income you bring in, I mean, one of the cool things I learned a lot more about was those cash balance accounts where you can put away multiple six figures into tax advantage accounts if you're a super, super high income earner. And then other things like tax loss harvesting, which Keith wasn't too thrilled about with the robo advisors, but he said you can do it yourself. And then tax gain harvesting, which is one of the superpowers that financially independent people who stop making a lot of money have. You can put so much money away while you're in that 0% capital gains tax bracket. Just such a huge hack. So I definitely recommend everyone goes back, listens to this a few times, and just takes everything to heart and implements it yeah, into their own tax strategy. definitely agree with the harvesting gains thing. Like Really look into that. Listen to this episode a couple times. If that applies to you, that can be so powerful. And it doesn't get as much publicity as something like harvesting losses because you don't see it on the websites like Betterment and the different robo-advisors. They're not talking about it as much, but it is super powerful if it applies to you. So definitely go listen to this episode again and, and make sure if that applies to you, you're taking advantage of it. So Justin, I think that... Whoa. What is it, Cody? It's the call to action, man. And today's call to action is to just speak with a tax professional. There's so many things that you might not know. And me, I mean, you guys know I am super, super frugal. The last thing I want to do is spend money on someone when I think I could do it myself. But I mean, something that Keith taught me is just that there are things that I don't know. And there are hundreds and hundreds of hours that he has spent and other really good CPAs in the network who know a heck of a lot more than you might about taxes. And that 100 bucks you spend on a quick little consultation might save you thousands of dollars in the future. And the second part of that is to look at your tax situation in a holistic scope. So you might have the most optimal tax planning for this year, or you think you do. But Keith's saying that you should be looking 20, 30 years out. He's not optimizing for this year. He's optimizing for 25 years down the road. And so that's just something that I never really thought of, but it's definitely something that can help you. Yeah, I think that's a great call to action, Cody. And this episode is just one of those episodes where you're probably going to need to listen to it more than once. And you're probably going to need to get even more information about it because tax codes can be complicated. And it's not just a theoretical thing. It's very practical stuff. And sometimes that takes a couple of times. So if you want to get all the details from this episode, you can just go out and get that at thefyshow.com slash wealthy accountant. And also, we're always discussing these kind of topics and other things that just help you along that path over on our Facebook group at thefyshow.com slash community. So go out there, listen, and as always, please, those five-star reviews and those ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast really help us get other great guests. And thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. 